Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to him, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread uh, from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Last week, we considered the phenomena that occurred on the day of Pentecost, and we heard the context in which Peter put those events, the empowerment of the church for the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon his church to empower for witness. But Peter begins now um, to to explain and to tell people about, about this Jesus whom they've witnessed and whom for whom the Holy Spirit has been poured out that they might witness to him. He begins by affirming, actually, that it's all about Jesus. It still is. 
Jesus is the focal point of all that we do. He is the center of our mission. He is the goal of our discipleship. He is the one who must receive all glory and praise. It's he, Peter tells us, that who was attested to or accredited by God by miracles and signs and wonders. This is actually the purpose of miracles, signs and wonders. They're not to go chasing after looking at phenomena. They are to give testimony to who Jesus is, to the work of redemption, reconciliation and restoration that has come about through the cross. Each miraculous event testifies that there is a God in heaven who loves us. Why did Jesus perform the miracle of changing water into wine at the wedding of Cana? Because he loved that couple and didn't want to see them disgraced. Why did Jesus perform the miracles of healing? Because he wanted to see people restored and to function as God intended them to function. Why did Jesus walk on water to demonstrate to the disciples the power of God even over nature? All miracles should give glory to God, not to a miracle worker. We know from experience that not everyone is healed. That God doesn't supernaturally intervene in everybody's circumstances with a miracle. And there's a mystery here that's not always easy to understand. It's difficult to explain. Sometimes God is working out his greater purpose and we have to trust that that he does not see things as we see them. However, when God does seem to act, doesn't seem to act, it doesn't undermine the fact that sometimes he does. We have to trust in his overwhelming love that has rescued us and brought us back into relationship with him. God is a God of miracles. God is a God who changes circumstances. God is a God who brings deliverance and brings victory and brings salvation. And we need to hold on to that truth. Believe it, even when circumstances tell us otherwise. In verse 23, we see God's sovereign plan being worked out in spite of human design. It says, For this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And we see here God's sovereign plan being worked out. And there are three parties involved here. There's God. There's the Jewish authorities. And there's the Romans. And Peter tells us that God had a plan that would result in Jesus being crucified on the cross for our salvation. But he used the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people and the brutality of Roman justice to bring about his purposes. If God can use brutal Romans and Jews who reject him, he can use anyone to bring about his plans. In the, in, in the midst of confusion and, and everything that's going on in our land, know that God is working. That God is working out his sovereign plan. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it's going to end. But I trust that he, he does and he's working it out. We may not understand what's going on in the world, but we can rest in the knowledge that God will bring about his sovereign purposes in the earth. And he will use people and events to shape things. We are called to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's us partnering with God to see his sovereign will fulfilled in us and through us in whatever situation God places us. 
Sometimes it can feel like the world is like a car driving towards the edge of a cliff with nobody at the wheel. While the passengers on board continue to eat, drink and be merry. The reality is that God is in the driver's seat. He is not absent. And he will bring things through to completion according to his plan. And for each one of us, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. So God is in, in control, and we can trust him. And we can establish that he is the one who will, whose will will uh, work out in this world. Next in verse 24 to 33, God, Peter talks about um, the resurrection of Jesus. He affirms that God raised Jesus from the dead because it was impossible for death to hold him. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And because Jesus was sinless, death could not hold him. He didn't merit death. And therefore, death couldn't, the grave couldn't hold him. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. Jesus was victorious because he was sinless. And Peter confirms that this is exactly what David had prophesied would happen in the Psalms, in Psalm 16. David didn't write this psalm concerning himself because, he, as everyone knew, David had died and, and his tomb is, 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 is there. Still in Jerusalem? Yeah, you can still go and visit the tomb of David if you want to. And so they knew David had died, and so he wasn't reading, uh, reciting or prophesying this psalm about himself. But he was looking forward to the day when Jesus would come, and when he would be raised from the dead, because the grave couldn't hold him. It was a prophetic psalm concerning the Messiah. And the greatest vindication of the work of the cross was that God raised Jesus from the dead. And that meant that he had accepted the offering for sin made by the Son. It meant that the way of salvation was made open for all of us by this one act. It meant that Jesus had triumphed over death, over sin and over Satan. And as a result, we can be free from the power of sin and death and free to live the life always intended for us to live. And Peter affirms that the early church believers were all witnesses of this fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. They were witnesses of the resurrection because they had seen the risen Christ in physical form amongst them. However, Peter doesn't stop there. He tells the crowd that not only was Jesus raised from the dead, he was also raised to be seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The place reserved for divinity. And he quotes Psalm 110.1, a favorite psalm of the early church, which in Hebrew reads, Yahweh said to my Yahweh, sit at my right hand. And thus he affirms the divinity and he goes on to say that this God has made, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Yahweh and Messiah, both Lord and Christ. And this is an incredible claim. He's telling this Jew, these Jewish people that they crucified Yahweh. Israel's God. And despite the fact that God has vindicated him and used these events to bring about salvation, it doesn't min- minimize the impact of what they've done. And it's not surprising, therefore, that they were cut to the heart. And in response, Peter tells them to repent and be baptized and promises them that they will receive the Holy Spirit.
And I believe this is normative, a normative Christian birth. Repentance means a change of mind followed by a change of direction. It means everything of the past now needs to be reassessed in the light of the forgiveness of sins that we have received. You cannot repent and carry on living as you did before. Everything must now come under the governance of the Lord Jesus in our lives. Our values, our beliefs, our attitudes, our behaviors must now line up with those of Jesus. That's what repentance means. You can't repent and carry on living as you did. It has to result in a change. It has to result in living out a new life and living according to the pattern that Jesus himself has set. For he is our model. He is our destiny. And one day we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So it's time to start living like him now, as far as we can. And the confirmation that repentance has taken place is baptism. This is an outward demonstration that we are dead to our old way of living and alive to our new way of living. And just as Jesus died and rose again, so we die to our old self and we rise again to him. And so baptism acts as an outward testimony to the world of what has happened inside. And it's also a means of grace by which God cuts us off from our past life so that we can embrace our new life. That's why baptism is important. And the result of repentance and baptism is that we receive the Holy Spirit. And whether we or not we have yet received the baptism of the Spirit, when we, once we come to faith, we all receive the Holy Spirit at our conversion. It's he who brings about the regeneration of our spirit and connects us to God. It's he who begins the work of sanctification, of cleaning us up, so that we become more and more like Jesus. And it's he who is the presence of God with us. And the result of Peter's preaching was that 3,000 came to faith. What a headache that must have been (laughs) for those early believers. First, there was the challenge of getting them all baptized. In Jerusalem, there's no river. Where do they go? They go down to one of the pools, the pool of Siloam or something. Or perhaps they all traipsed off down to the Jordan, however 20 miles away or however far it is. How do you do it? (laughs) and 3,000 in one pool a lot of people in a pool (laughs) somehow they managed the logistics of it and next they suddenly had to organise this massive community there was no building big enough to accommodate them and we're given scant details of exactly how they organised themselves however some clues are given in the verses that follows and there was a, but you know, fundamentally, the point was there was a great level of commitment to this new community that formed, such that they to, we told they were devoted. They devoted themselves, but to what? What did they devote themselves? If you remember what I preached on this time last year, I'm going to reiterate those same things at the vision day. They devoted themselves to teaching. The first thing they were devoted to was the apostles' teaching. They wanted to know and understand the truth of the word of God, especially as it spoke about Jesus and all that he came to achieve. They wanted to deepen their relationship with God and to remain true to what Jesus had come to establish. They wanted strong foundations to be laid in their lives, and so they were devoted to the teaching of the word of God. 
And I believe teaching is a core part of what God would do amongst us. And perhaps that's just because I'm a teacher. However, I believe it's the truth that sets us free. And knowing the truth will bring freedom into our lives. The more we soak ourselves in the truth, the more we will have our thinking and our values shaped by the truth. And the more we can live out according to the purposes of God. Teaching is not something we do on a Sunday to fill a 20-minute slot. It's a vital, uh, vital to the life and growth of all of us as Christians. And we all need to be increasing in our knowledge and understanding of the word. And putting it into practice so that we can grow in our relationship with God and with one another. And so that we can become more effective in our mission to the world. There's no substitute for good teaching. And good study. And good immersion in the word of God. The next thing they were devoted to was fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia. Translated as fellowship. It means it's a common sharing. A sharing together of lives. It's from the same root used in 44 where it says they had all things in common. Fellowship in the early church did not mean getting together once a week for a cup of coffee. That's a way we can experience fellowship at one level. But it meant much more than that. It meant sharing their lives together. It meant supporting one another as each had need out of their own substance. It was seeing a need of, um, um, with another brother and sister and saying, well, I've got something I can, I can fill that need with. I can sell this and maybe release some finance, and then I can go and alleviate that person's problem. That was, their, that was the level of their sharing. It wasn't expecting the church, the state, or anyone else to fill the need. It was saying, I've got the resources. I can fill the need. I believe this is important for any church to grow. Not that we all go around selling everything we've got and giving to each other, but, but we don't need to... Be devoted to fellowship. In order to trust someone, you need to know them. In order to know someone, you need to take time to get to know them. And that can't just happen on a Sunday morning. And that's why home groups remain fundamental to what we do as a church. And if you're not in one, I'd encourage you to get connected so that you can grow in fellowship with the rest of the body. Home groups are also a key to pastoral care within the church. However, even home groups are limited and our fellowship should continue beyond formal meetings and flow into, out into our support for one another as each has needs. We can all help somebody. We all have something to give. And it's about seeing the need and seeking to fill it. The third thing they were devoted to was the breaking of bread. This was not limited by their collective gathering together. As they, as uh, we've already mentioned, there were over 3,000 of them by this point, And so there was no way they could all come together in one place for communion. And 40, verse 46 gives us a clue to how they managed this. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Clearly, sharing the bread and the wine was central to their worship. But they didn't limit it to, to, limit it to a collective gathering, but shared the bread and the wine together wherever they met for a meal. We meet him because Jesus has made the difference. That's what they were declaring in doing that. And we know from Paul's letters to the Corinthians that communion was a central part of the service for the gathered church as well as when they met individually. It was a communal meal which was part 
a part of which was communion. And we must always remember the cross is the center of our faith. All the benefits we have only only come to us because of what Jesus achieved on the cross. And remembering and celebrating that fact fact needs to be top of our agenda. And that's why we, we now have communion each month. To remind us and to put the cross at the center of all that we do. The fourth thing they were devoted to was prayer. Nothing happens without prayer. And I believe that we live in a day when we need to be increasing in our prayer life. This is a day in which we see increasing godlessness in our world. Where values that we've taken for granted have been eroded. Where the church everywhere is retreating. And if we're to see any kind of breakthrough, it will be powered by prayer. The important thing is this. That we pray and we continue to pray. And we all pray some more until we see breakthrough. So their devotion was focused on these four areas, teaching, um, the second one, breaking of bread and prayer. Fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. And the result of this devotion in all these areas was that their love for one another was demonstrated in their willingness to support one another. It's not necessarily necessarily that they had a common purse, but that they were willing to support sacrificially to ensure that everyone in the community had their needs met. And the key here is that everyone took responsibility for this to support one another. See, church is not about meetings, although they are important to facilitate teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Church is about building a community of people who love and care for one another as a reflection of God's love for each one of us. And such a community is a testimony to the world more than all our fine words and preaching. As Jesus himself said in John thirteen thirty five, By this all men will know that you're my, my disciples if you have love one for another. The result of their vibrant, devoted and loving community was that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. And when the citizens of Jerusalem looked at what was going on amongst them, they looked approvingly at them. And this then translated into numbers. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Oh, that we might see people added daily. And I just want to encourage us. Let us strive to become the community that God wants us to be. Maybe it will happen. God is at work amongst us. And I want to encourage all of us to embrace all that God is doing in his day. That he might create amongst us a community for his glory. That sees change coming to our town. Amen.